Amen. Our sermon text this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, as we continue our consecutive journey through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 12, now to verse 33, and we'll read through to verse 45 this morning. Matthew 12, beginning in verse 33, Jesus has just spoken uh, in regards to what is called by many the unforgivable sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and then continues uh, to talk to Pharisees, teachers of the law, the crowds that are around him. We read then in verse 33, Give your attention to the reading of God's holy word, for the grass withers and the flowers will fall. The word of the Lord endures forever. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, Or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord God, unless you speak, unless you move, unless you act according to your spirit, uh, we will remain um, unchanged. And thus we beg your grace, your ministry here, through your word, by your spirit, 
be with your servant as he preaches. May your truth be honored and proclaimed. And might you give us receptive hearts to all that is contained in your holy word. Change us, renew us, encourage us, afflict those who wander and who are hardened against you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church in America recently, the past week and a half or so, had uh, quite an anniversary. It was May 21st, 1922, that Harry Emerson Fosdick preached an infamous sermon titled, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? Fosdick's message was a, a clarion call to modernist Christians. Uh, He called them to stand against those who stood for, in short, the historic Christian faith. It it was a call to move the church past things like the authority of Scripture, past the virgin birth, the miracles and the resurrection of Jesus, redemption through the cross, a vicarious redemption through the blood of Jesus. Fosdick wanted the church to move beyond all of these things. He believed they had had their time. And now Christianity needed to evolve into a a more modern expression so that it could remain a cultural force. It was really the the call in the early 20th century. Move beyond these historic doctrines that we may remain kind of in, in cultural power and influence. There was a man, a powerful man, who was on his side. You'll recognize this name. His name was John D. Rockefeller. And... Because of the controversy from this sermon, Fosdick would end up having to leave the pulpit from which he proclaimed it, a Presbyterian church pulpit in New York City, even though he himself was a Baptist. But from that, together, Fosdick and Rockefeller would help found the Riverside Church in New York City, the Morningside Heights neighborhood of Manhattan, still standing today. It's one of the most recognizable and impressive church buildings in America. Built with Rockefeller's money, it has a 22-story cathedral that still towers in the place where it stands. It's really an illustration for what uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick and Rockefeller wanted, a religion that was tailored to the culture to be impressive in order that it could remain in influence. The teachings of Jesus tell of something else, though, don't they? The words of Jesus are always highlighting for us the the need for us to recognize the way that the Christian faith goes into the deepest invisible recesses and chambers of the human heart. You could imagine perhaps the the Pharisees might be impressed with a 22-story cathedral standing in the midst of New York City. But what they could not stand, what they did not appreciate when Jesus would speak of it, was the way that he spoke of the invisible things and the work of God in the human heart that show who a human being truly is. In the context of this passage, we, just, we, we have just seen that the Pharisees have uttered blasphemous unbelief as Jesus has uh, freed a man from demon oppression and from bodily sickness, from disease. He healed a, a blind and a mute man and freed him from demon possession. 
In response to this, what did the Pharisees do? They uttered blasphemous unbelief that this is according to the power of Beelzebul that he casts out demons. This shows the state of their heart. Here they demand signs. We wish to see a sign from you. But it's the kind of sign which they want, not the kind that Jesus has already provided for them. That, of course, reveals their heart. They think that they can perhaps at best remain neutral when it comes to Jesus. I'm going to evaluate the things that you do, and then I'm going to decide whether or not I can believe what you are saying. In doing so, they leave themselves open to be claimed by another, for there is no neutrality in our lives. Neutrality is not an option. And what the Gospel of Matthew is always bringing before us is what will we do with Jesus? With what he does, with what he proclaims, how he invites people to respond to him in trust and reliance and repentance. You see that again and again and again in our gospel, highlighted once again in this passage. So we consider three tests of the human heart, these three barometers today as they occur in our text, that we may take stock in our own hearts, thus that we may come to the one who makes us clean the one who renews and renovates our heart, the one who takes up residence so that we can be claimed by no one else. Let's consider these things together, beloved people of God. The first test of the heart is the tongue, one's speech, what comes out of one's mouth. We have just dealt with the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Again, Jesus heals a blind and a mute man. The Pharisees say it is not by the power of God that he does these things. It's actually by uh, the power of the kingdom of Satan that he is doing these things. Thus, Jesus speaks of the sin of blasphemy against the the Holy Spirit, which is a a perpetual and, and, and ongoing refusal to recognize the, the clear power of God at work and attributing it to the enemy of God, the arch enemy of God, to Beelzebul. It's crucial for us to notice, at least uh, right from the start, the importance that Jesus attaches to our words. Not because of any magic in our words, but because our, wor- our words and what we say reveals what our hearts believe about Jesus. It is the The treasure chest of our lives is the heart, and how it is revealed is through our tongue. This is not to say that our mouths always reveal 100% of what's going on in our hearts. There's uh, much deception that people can use and get away with. But generally speaking, the truth will out. Of course, the truth will ultimately out. And generally speaking, human beings cannot for long hide the true state of their heart with what they say. Psalm 52 recognizes this, that there is both deception, but then also a, a prevalent evil in this kind of person. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The primary focus of what Jesus is saying here is that our hearts reveal our faith. 
Our, our, our mouths reveal uh, our, our hearts, I should say. Our mouths reveal our faith, and our mouths reveal the Lord of our hearts. Thus, it's direct, directly tied to what we say about Christ. But we should not miss the importance of speech in general. And we must hear those words of Jesus as he uh, pulls our attention forward to the day of judgment. Not only will words reveal where our faith lies, not only will our words reveal our trust or lack of trust in Jesus Christ, but our words also reveal the content of our character, don't they? Our words reveal the content of our character and our virtue or lack thereof. Jesus says, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. He doesn't say every evil word, though evil words would definitely be contained in that. He says for every careless word, for every word that we speak that does not have attached to it an awareness of what we say matters. It matters to God. It matters because that's the way he has made us, that our hearts would reveal the true state, that our mouths would reveal the true state of our hearts. We need desperately to hear these words. In an age where words are so cheap, in an age where information flies back and forth a million miles an hour and travels around the world before people realize what they have said, an age that gives various platforms for anyone to say anything that they want and to put it up on a place where it can be seen, How desperately we need to hear these words in an age where sarcasm reigns, where it's difficult sometimes to decipher whether or not someone is serious. I'm not sure if you're serious. How often do you say that to yourself or to someone who's speaking to you? Talk is cheap. How desperately we need to hear these words and be reminded from our Lord the way that God has fashioned us, this gift that he has given to us, the gift of our tongue, the gift of our mouth that reveals our hearts. And the chief exercise of the tongue is to give glory and honor to the Lord of life, to give glory and honor to the Savior and Redeemer. That is the greatest privilege that God has given you, to speak of Jesus Christ, to speak of your love for him, to speak of your faith in him, and that it reveals your hearts, then Jesus says these things that may catch this next verse that may catch us off guard. For by your words you will be justified, by your words you will be condemned. Now we read elsewhere in Scripture, don't we, that we are justified by God's grace and through faith and through the merits of Christ. So we know that the Bible doesn't contradict itself. The Bible doesn't teach these parallel truths. It's true in this sense and then true in that sense that you're justified by grace and you're also justified by your words. What's going on here is what we call the semantic range of a word, or a certain word can have various nuanced meanings. And here, justified, we understand to mean something like vindicated. What we say reveals the state of our hearts, and on the day of judgment, it will reveal whether or not God has saved us by his grace. It will will reveal whether or not God has worked in us and given us a new heart that confesses Christ as Lord. It's important for us to understand this, especially when we come to a place like James chapter 2, where it says we are justified not by faith alone, but also by our works. There we need to understand that these words can have different nuanced meanings. 
in a certain context, it means uh, proven to be or declared by God to be forgiven and righteous. And in another context, it means something more like vindicated. It's the only way that we can understand God's Word in a way that doesn't contradict itself. And it says very clearly, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Romans 5, 1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the hope of the gospel. Jesus teaches us here that we can understand a word uh, like this to have a different nuanced meaning. By your words, you will be vindicated. What you say reveals the state of your hearts, and that will be made known and be made plain even on the day of judgment. We need to hear these words of Jesus. Jesus says, make the tree good and its fruit good. There he's saying basically conduct reveals character. Conduct reveals character. If you want a tree to yield good fruit, you need to care for the tree in ways that make it healthy. Water it, prune it, get rid of dead branches. The point of the metaphor is not to delve into those parts specifically, but to show the connection between healthy tree and good fruit. So the spiritual truth here is that for the fruit of a life to be truly good, it must flow forth from a good heart, which prompts the question, of course, how do we make our hearts good? How do we do that? And the answer, of course, is that we can only do it by coming to the one whose work it is to give us a new heart. Ezekiel 36 I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We make our hearts good by turning to and coming to the one who makes us clean. Psalm 51, this is the language that we find, isn't it? Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. You do the work, then I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God. It is the work of God to do these things. John Flavel, Puritan pastor, says, as long as the heart is not set right by grace, no duties of the heart will keep it right with God. It cannot be attained through our own fleshly efforts. We need God's grace to work upon the heart, to regenerate it, to soften it unto his work. This may make us frustrated that we are called to be so attentive to the state of our hearts, and what we find is that we are powerless to change our hearts. But we remember that as Jesus is speaking these words, he gives the invitation to come to him. St. Augustine said this, Command, O Lord, command what you will, but grant what you command. In other words, O God, you are sovereign. It is to, to your mind, your authority, that allows you to command whatever you willest, whatever you would, you may do. But here I am to say that you must grant what you command because I am helpless to save myself. Thus Jesus speaks these words and in them gives the invitation to come to the one who makes us clean, to come to the one who renews us and renews our hearts. 
And in our coming, there is the evidence that God has worked on us to give us not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. All those who come to the Lord Jesus Christ already have, by God's grace, been made alive. John Newton says it this way, and I think it's so wonderful. He says this, He found us when we sought him not. Then we began to seek him, and he was pleased to be found by us. That is the gracious and compassionate, the saving God that we serve, that we love. All those who come to him, what has gone on in their hearts? He's given them life by his grace. And he found us when we were not seeking him. He gave us eyes to see our need and eyes to see the glory and the beauty of Christ. It's all by his sovereign grace. Then we began to seek him and he was pleased to be found by us. So we come to him. We come to Christ in faith and repentance. And he gives us faith in the place of our self-dependence. He gives us love of God in the place of our self-love. He gives us obedience in the place of our autonomy and self-will. He gives us self-denial in the place of our self-seeking. And he demands that we seek all of these things, but that we seek them by his grace. So take stock in your heart this morning, brothers and sisters. And what is your mouth filled with? Because the mouth reveals the treasury of the heart. So what is your mouth filled with? What do you say of your Lord Jesus Christ? How do you speak of him? My mouth will tell of your righteous acts and of your deeds of salvation all of the day, for their number is past my knowledge. Do you speak of your Lord? Do you speak of your God in these kinds of adoring and worshipful ways? What do you say to and for others? Not only what do you say of our Lord, what do you say to and for others? If you go and look at all of the the, the scriptures regarding what we say and how we speak to one another, You see the importance attached to all of these things, don't we? Ephesians 4, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. When we speak in in ways that tear down, we grieve the Spirit of God. Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Ephesians 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Is your mouth filled with thanksgiving? Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness, in your hearts to God. What comes out of your mouth reveals the state of your heart, doesn't it? That's the first test. Second one is receiving, resting, and rejoicing in Christ. And, uh, or to state it differently, uh, how we receive the sign of Christ. The Pharisees came to him and said, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. They're basically saying, uh, they're, they're trying to appear pious. They, they, they say, we want to be open, but you need to prove it to us. You need to, to show us the goods. The posture that they have here is, is something like the, 
the college philosophy student, right? the philosophy 101 student who thinks that he, he kind of has all of the answers and his, his posture is going to be, you need to sort of prove it to me now. When I was in college, I had a friend who had this posture in, in some sense regarding uh, miracles. When someone was sick or hurt, he would earnestly pray over them and longingly ask that God would give them a, a miraculous healing. And what I came to find out was it was not so much that he so desired that person to be healed as much as he himself wanted confirmation of this power of God. He wanted to see a, a miraculous healing. He said, my faith is firm, but I would like confirmation. And something similar is going on here. It's revealing the heart of unbelief in the Pharisees. There's, of course, irony in their requests. Think of all the signs that Jesus has done. Think of all that he has done within their sight so that they could see his power and that God was there with him attending to the work of Jesus. They do not approve of the signs that Jesus has done. Jesus says this is an evil and adulterous generation, pulls on the, uh, the language of, of the prophets that would call Israel an adulterous nation, a spiritually wayward nation. And here we see there's an idolatry here that is running away from Jesus and acting as if it can be the one who evaluates in a place of authority the claims and the teachings and the words of Jesus, an idolatry of various things, perhaps the life and the, the position of power that they had and did not want to give up in the sight of the Messiah, an idolatry over their own intellectual power and ability an idolatry that runs from Christ. Jesus says there will be a sign, the sign of Jonah. Now, what was the sign of Jonah? The sign of Jonah was Jonah himself. He was the sign. He went to Nineveh, and we have to then assume that if Jonah is the sign, he goes to Nineveh, and somehow, whether it's through the proclamation of Jonah or otherwise, they are made known what has actually happened to Jonah. That Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, then he is spit up onto dry land, he passes through the waters of death, God saves him from certain death, and then he lives to proclaim of the God who saves them and can save them from certain death. So he goes to the Ninevites and he preaches repentance and he himself is the sign to say the God of whom I speak is a God who is truly powerful enough to save from certain death for look at me. In other words, Jesus then also functions as the sign for he is the one who in his person reveals to us that the God of the scriptures saves from certain death. And in the proclamation of Jesus Christ, there we have all of the confirmation that this world needs, all of the evidence, all of the power in order for them to turn from their wicked ways, to repent of their sins, and to come to this Jesus Christ, who through repentance will save. And Jesus says, the men of Nineveh will rise up. They will judge and condemn this evil and adulterous generation, for they do not repent. You do not repent at the sight of the Lord of life. Something greater than Jonah is here. 
And that, of course, is Jesus Christ. So as we think about these things, take stock in your own heart, beloved. Do you receive Christ as he is presented? Not with this posture of, you need to show me the goods. But do you receive Christ as God has chosen to reveal him? As Christ reveals himself in the scriptures and in the proclamation of his word? Do you receive? Do you rest? Do you exercise faith and trust? Understanding that though this world and this life may present you with many questions, one thing you will not do is renounce the trust that you have in Jesus and the confidence that he gives you unto eternal life. And then do you rejoice? Is your heart glad to own him? Think about that, brothers and sisters. Is your heart glad to own Jesus Christ? Are you overjoyed that he is your Savior? Are you filled every day with a thankfulness and a rest and a joy and a gladness that comes from knowing this God is your God through Christ? That's the second test of the heart, whether or not we receive and rest and rejoice over Christ. They are the happiest Christians, one author says, who have the lowest thoughts of themselves and in whose eyes Jesus is most glorious and precious. The final test of the heart is this. Is there a vacancy sign over your heart? Is there a vacancy sign over your heart? Jesus tells this last account that that connects back to what he has done, of course, in the the healing of the demon-oppressed man in verse 22. Jesus healed this demon-oppressed man, And then through this discourse about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, a tree and its fruit, the demand for a sign, Jesus then circles back around to then address this again. There may be a person who is uh, demon-oppressed, and if he is uh, saved or healed from that state, that doesn't mean that he would be free from ever having to worry about that again, unless his heart is occupied by another. Unless, and the implication is, unless he has given himself to the one who reigns and rules over the heart, who is Jesus Christ himself. And of course, the connection there uh, is from one person to then Jesus speaks of the entire evil and adulterous generation that believes it can be neutral in regard to Jesus. And there is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus Christ, is there? Whoever is not with me is against me. And that's, uh, we find that in Luke chapter 11 as well. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Whoever is not with me is against me. There is no Neutrality. So demon possession is not an easy topic to understand or discuss. But we know that Jesus confirms for us here that it is real and that it is a real danger to human beings. But it is only a danger to those whose hearts have that vacancy sign illumined over it, isn't it? This demon then travels through arid places, through watery places, and it can come back and find the house that is a, a human person unoccupied, and it ends up worse than it was before. 
And so finally, what this does for us is it confronts for us uh, and shows to us the danger of those who think they can remain like Switzerland on these issues, neutral in life and in spirituality. You see, the call of Jesus Christ is one that has with it authority and power. The authority with which Jesus makes his call that comes through uh, and with the authority of his Father when he commands all men everywhere to repent. And if you are not, if you have not given your heart to Jesus Christ, if that vacancy sign is illumined over your heart, then you put yourself in a dangerous place spiritually. Proverbs 23, 26 says this, My son, give me your heart. Bring yourself low. Open yourself up to belief. Let Christ come into your heart and rule it. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, don't convince yourself that you can remain neutral. Don't convince yourself that you can sort of be sovereign and Lord over the evidence of Christ. And at some point, you will come to a determination on him. His call does not work that way. His call is one of authority and power. And it is not the words of Jesus that stand to be scrutinized under the thoughts of men. It is the words of men that will be judged by Jesus on the day of judgment. You will be held accountable, Jesus says, for every word you speak. Don't think you can remain neutral when it comes to Christ. Rather, come to him. Humble yourself. If you are a believer, these words are not to scare you. They are words of comfort. For if there is no vacancy sign over your heart, you can be filled with confidence that the Lord of life has taken up residence in you and he protects you. And his strength is enough for you. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. These are words of comfort and confidence. So if you're a believer, it's not meant to scare you in that way. We are astounded at at spiritual power, and we are thankful for the spiritual power of Christ. But these are words of comfort if you are a believer. But if you are a believer also, perhaps you need to hear afresh that Christ must be king of your heart. Perhaps you need to hear afresh that he will abide no equals. Perhaps in certain, in certain ways and on certain days, you drift into more of a posture of neutrality. Don't let yourself do it. Live every day with a fierce conviction and, and realization of Jesus as the Lord and King of your heart. Understand that if you are His, there, there's no vacancy sign. He's the Lord the King of kings, and he's your king. May we, by God's grace, live in ways that reflect it. May we receive Christ as he's presented. May we rest in him. May we we rejoice that we are his. By his grace, by God's grace, fill your treasury with what glorifies him so that you may speak in ways that glorify him. By his grace, put to death your self-love and your fleshly sin. By his grace, live knowing and showing that Christ is your king. And by faith, 
lives through the power of the Spirit in you. Let's pray.